it may help to clarify everything in this series to add a new dimension to the discussion by observing, as I should have observed much sooner, that any discussion of the meaning of any word in any language, in any philosophy, in any culture, should never make the mistake, which I've now made more or less consistently for 32 episodes, so I'm berating myself for it, should never make the mistake of treating the word in isolation. The reality of the discussion so far is that you can't use a word like truth unless you also have some context within which that word is being used and that context needs to define your values, your aspirations, what you think matters and how you conceive of human thriving. Because what you take to be true on the assumption that you take it to be the best that we can do right now or the things that we label as true as being the things we do well to take careful note of and in the occasions when we agree with them, approve of them, act accordingly. If that's the case, then the only way we can evaluate what is true is by evaluating and recognizing and criticizing and so on our values, aspirations, and what we think matters and what we think human thriving is all about. And the fact that I made this mistake, albeit implicitly rather than explicitly, in turn reminds me that we should always be more mindful of context. And I would use the word relative, but I don't want to give grounds for believing that the version of the theory of truth that I'm advocating is relativistic. It is just contextual. And so what we think to be true will necessarily be affected by, to repeat myself yet again, our values, our cultures, our conceptions of human thriving, what we think matters, and what our aspirations for ourselves and for the human race, insofar as we have that rather grand aspiration, what they are. So it's not really very clever of me to have spent 32 episodes talking about truth without making that clear, even though it's really been implicit in everything I've said because what I've been saying all along is that in order to understand truth we need to understand what's best for us and of course you can't begin to answer that question if someone challenges you by saying and what is best for us and who decides you can't begin to answer or even address that question unless you've also thought about your values, etc, etc, etc. And that gives rise to what could become a series in its own, but certainly a, a consideration that will extend this series a little further, which is that long ago I wrote 
a, a piece, an essay, in which I suggested that the three pillars of the culture in which we live, those being truth, reason and knowledge, could well be replaced, although not one for one, that would be an even worse mistake, could be replaced by a different trio consisting of trust, worthwhileness and resonance. And of course, I have mentioned this, I think once or twice in this long series, series of series, but I haven't perhaps put it explicitly enough in the context that we're dealing with in this series nine on truth, which should be a series really on replacing the pillars of truth, reason and knowledge with worthwhileness, trust and resonance. Because worthwhileness, trust and resonance do map more comfortably to what's best for us. What's worthwhile is what brings us to a position in which we can conceive ourselves to be thriving, doing well, living, full, successful, civil, corporate, tribal lives, or whatever they may be. What resonates is what touches us in our most deep convictions, what we use as our means of judging, assessing, evaluating everything we encounter in the world. And trust, well, trust is, in some respects, the most difficult of the three, because it requires us to decide which of the competing values and systems of truth, reason and knowledge, not to mention worthwhileness and so forth, which of those we are going to allow to hold sway. And if you analyse a great deal of human activity, it makes it a lot clearer what is going on if we analyse it in the light of these considerations. From the way this person is behaving, for example, what does that tell us about what this person thinks matters? What does it tell us about what this person values? What does it tell us about whether we should trust them with anything, let alone running the country or whatever it might be? And so we're forever looking not so much at facts as the motivation that lies behind the behaviour including the assertions as to what is to be regarded as a fact, as a truth. Because we haven't talked as much perhaps as we should about this. What benefits us most, what's best for us, isn't of course a single thing, because we are not a single thing. What benefited those who made their political careers out of the Brexit debacle doesn't benefit the country as a whole. 
it was quite obvious to those of us who were against it at the time that it wouldn't, but that didn't stop 52% of the people who voted from being persuaded, unfortunately, regrettably, tragically, and to our shame and everlasting disadvantage. And if there are any of you listening to this who say, well, are you going to stop going on about Brexit? Yeah, I'll go, I will stop going on about Brexit when we rejoin the European Union, which I firmly expect to happen in my lifetime. Pause while you gasp for breath. Because I don't think the country has a future outside it, and I never have. Anyway, that's another story, but, well, it's not entirely another story, because it's about what we think matters. And as Donald Tusk in the day remarked, and I may have mentioned it, and I certainly agree with it, the important thing to consider, which we didn't, is that the European Union is a political enterprise, not an economic one. The economics comes along with it, but the key part of it, the part that the Brexiteers ignored or specifically objected to, was the notion that the country, the countries of Europe should act more together, align with one another, share values, and so present the world with a unified bloc that could stand reasonably against the United States, Russia, Soviet Union as it once was, in the early days of the European Union, and of course China in the modern era. And there's never been a time when it made less sense to be a small and insignificant, albeit independent, country, because the whole of the world needs you to be members of a bigger bloc. And you can have your disagreements while still being a member of that bloc. So it's simply nonsense. Nonsense. Malignant, malicious, mischievous nonsense to talk about taking back control. It's simply about abandoning all hope of having any control over your own destiny because nobody will treat you seriously enough. And you may have the most absurd pretensions about how important you are, but it's not going to do you any good when, as they say, push comes to shove. So, leaving that aside, it nevertheless forms a good uh, example of what is best for us to believe and what is therefore to be regarded as true, and by extension as false. And that we were so readily persuaded that what it was best for us to do was certainly what it was not best for us to do, is a great indictment of our, well, frankly, our intelligence, our collective national tribal intelligence because if there was ever anything that was more obviously wrong than us leaving the European Union, I can't remember it in my lifetime. So truth needs to be put in the context of value 
it needs to be put in, put in the context of worth, which of course is very closely associated with value. It needs to be put in the context of trust, because we can't reevaluate everything as if it came new. There must be some sense in which the way we evaluate any idea, any claim, any suggestion, any you should do this because it'll be best for you, we have to evaluate that in the light of a whole raft of things, including what we trust and who we trust and who we value and what we value and what we think matters. Because if our conception of human thriving gives credence to a notion of what it's best for us to do that turns us into Nazis, fascists, or persuades us that cruelty is not the worst thing that we can be, do. Notice how the syntactical confusions of the original sentence re-emerge. But if something persuades us that we should be dishonest, persuade people of something that we know is not in their best interest, like a fraudster, like a confidence trickster, like a salesman in some instance, all of that needs to be taken in the context of what it is really best for us to believe and that has to be evaluated in the light of what we think it is to thrive. And we'll have a jingle and I'll come back to this after it. We shouldn't really stop just by saying that we should examine the meaning of a word in the context of one or two other words. What we should really say, and what the American philosopher Willard, Willard Van Ormond Quine did say, is that to understand the meaning of a single word, we really need to understand an entire language. In other words, we need to understand every context in which that word arises. And of course we can't... Of course we can't know every occasion on which a word arises. But this gave rise to his celebrated theory that language operates a little bit like a sheet, a, a rubber sheet, that is distorted a little by everyone who uses a word. I suppose a rubber solid or a multi-dimensional solid would be an even better illusion, but let's stick with this. So that every time we use a word, we shift its meaning fractionally, imperceptibly. And in order to understand a single word, we need to understand an entire language. And we need to embrace that language because the real meaning of the word, when we get down to its core, will be influenced, to some extent, 
by all the other words and all the other sentences that there are in that language and ever have been in that language. And of course you start to go a little bit squiffy at the edges at this point and say, well, that seems to imply that in order to understand anything, we have to understand everything. And Quine was regularly and still is criticised along those lines. But that's not to say that he isn't right. That may be an inconvenience. It may be something we'd rather not face. But it still means that every word we use, every sentence we utter, every paragraph we read, every book we write, in one way or another, both shifts a language and also demands that the language from which and in which it arose be understood as a whole before it can be understood itself. And what we should say at that point is, well, that simply means that we have to be more modest in what we think we understand. Insofar as I have some experience of the English language, albeit fairly extensive, to that extent I may say that I understand a particular word or sentence or paragraph or book, but only to that extent. And the notion of a full understanding is simply something that we shouldn't really even contemplate or speak about because there is no such thing. A full understanding would involve knowing what a word, sentence, paragraph, book could mean in every conceivable circumstance, howsoever construed. And that's just an impossible task. So, as has so often been the case, the way we should understand something should simply be couched in humble terms that say we could be wrong. This is the best we can do, but insofar as we are not masters of a language in the sense of knowing absolutely everything there is to know about it, or having read everything that's ever been written in it, or heard every sentence that's ever been spoken in it, etc., to that extent, we should be more circumspect about what a word means. And this is made all the more the case where words get used in ways that are contradictory, or where there are different theories of what a word means that create, I suppose, what you might call rocks in the flowing stream of that language's history. So that for a time, truth might be thought to be some eternal external reality. And what I'm suggesting is that the time has come to conceive of it differently. To see the rock that that has placed in the flow of the stream of history and culture and language as one that we would do well to remove or see worn away finally to be replaced with something more fluid more circumspect, more humble and so the tenuous connections between words and their remotest cousins in a language however tenuous it may be and it is very tenuous sometimes isn't insignificant or negligible and the language as a whole defines the way we see the world.
and our grasp of that language is only ever partial. And therefore our view of the world, our vision of the world, our understanding of the world is only ever partial. And this is all of a piece, but it should mean that we're far less strident, far less insistent when we talk about things like truth, goodness, these big words, moral, right, because all of these things have to be contextualized, to use my preferred expression here. And what I think also follows, although it's in a sense a little bit of a stretch to go here, is to say that because everything that we know is couched in language, and because our command of language must always be partial, therefore there's a sense in which our command of reality must always be partial, and it isn't then quite such a stretch to say that our choices of temporary truths are just our choices of what we conceive to be the most effective currently available fictions. Now I put this point of view to one of my GPT friends from OpenAI the other day, I think it was GPT-4, and it didn't really like it much, and came up with the classic response. In fact, we, I should explain what we've been doing. I had been trying to get my head around something that I wanted to understand all my life to do with the way nuclear fusion combines atomic particles to make heavier elements so that in the hearts of stars hydrogen gets two hydrogen atoms combined to make helium and then helium and so on and, and you get heavier and heavier elements and different stars make different elements and the oxygen that I'm breathing to speak this and the carbon that makes up my body were all of them all of them once built out of this fusion process in the depths of now long dead stars if that doesn't make you humble then nothing will in order for heavier elements to exist there must be what's called the strong nuclear force which pulls the positively charged protons together more strongly than the charge the positive charges that they all have tend to repel them in other words it's a sort of tug of war between the strong nuclear force pulling them together and their positive charges that are tending to force them apart like the same poles of a magnet now i'm not going to pretend to understand this and i may already be confused about the relationship between binding energy and the strong nuclear force but in essence the point is that some of the energy that is needed in order to sustain the hydrogen atoms is no longer needed once the helium atom has formed and is therefore released so every time in a star billions of years ago a 
fusion takes place of hydrogen into helium and eventually into things like carbon and oxygen, that process releases energy and it is the release of that energy itself as a result of the tug of war that is that energy that resists the gravitational collapse that the masses of the stars would otherwise endure and so it's released and it radiates and the stars endure and eventually explode and spew these heavier elements out into the universe and eventually they accrete in planets and life can and in our case on our planet has evolved as a very brief summary of a very long story this needs to go in the middle of 33b 933b It strikes me that it's helpful to think about representation generally and what we're doing when we're using any kind of language, any kind of representation, not just spoken language or written language, but art, music. What are human beings really about when they're doing all this? Because to be human, is to be a word or language using or a representation using entity. So we're fundamentally trying to communicate with one another and with ourselves. And to do that, we use all sorts of devices. Take as an example, the Goldilocks principle. I've used it once or twice. The idea that when we're looking at something, we're trying to avoid too big or too small and to find something that's just right, too hard, too soft, just right, too hot, too cold, just right. We can use the Goldilocks principle without for a moment suggesting that there was ever anybody called Goldilocks or that there was ever a little girl who found her way into a house that was occupied by a family of three bears. We don't need to buy into the literal truth of that, as though we would then be disappointed to be told that Goldilocks and the three bears never existed. And you can say the same about many and many, most all even children's stories. But we somehow get ourselves in a fix over not just religion, where we seem to want it to be more than representational. We seem to want it somehow to be grounded in an ultimate reality, an urstoff, to use the word again, and therefore to be verging on the useless at the moment when we decide that it isn't. But I've argued, and I'll say it again now, 
The, the fact that religion is no more based in reality than Goldilocks and the Three Bears does not mean, really does not mean that it is useless. It just means that what it's doing is affording us a way to get a handle on something that would otherwise be more difficult to get a handle on. Which isn't to say that there aren't better and worse forms of representation and indeed better and worse forms of the expressions that help us to get handles on things in religion and in all, in all sorts of other places. But if we find that people regularly resort to certain kinds of representation, as they do with things like the Goldilocks principle, then it's probable that those representations get to grips somehow with something that we really need to be able to say and to wrap our minds around. Now what that entails is uh, the question of what is understanding, which I might come back to, and indeed it might, although I'm not sure that it will, form the topic for series 10. But suppose we now switch into science. Science began, I suppose, as a, as a sort of realism. Because we were trying to understand a very physical world around us, why things were hot and cold, hard and soft, some things were poisonous, some things were good for us, we tended to think that the purpose of science was to give us a handle on what to do with material things of whatever kind. That continued, but science became more and more abstract, so that it started to theorise about things that could at one level be said to be of no consequence at all. I mean, it makes no difference to the way I walk along this country path, whether the earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the earth. If I am alive and walking then, and the path is here, then it will still be a path that I'm walking along. But these principles, which have sometimes been made, been made metaphysical, seemed to come, or did come, to assume importance for us. So we revere the likes of Newton because of the way he enabled us to talk about the way the universe appears to operate at a certain focus, at a certain zoom level, at a certain resolution even though we know that he, 250 years later, would be supplanted by a mixture of Einstein's relativities and quantum theory. But in the modern world, we have our own representations. And if you want to try and understand fundamental physics, you do need to get into not just the Bohr-Rutherford atom and protons and neutrons and electrons, but you need to go deeper because you do need an explanation for why in the nucleus of an atom the positively charged protons don't simply fly apart under electromagnetic repulsion because they've all got positive charges. Or you do need an explanation of why the negatively charged electrons don't plunge into the nucleus and neutralize the positively charged protons.
why doesn't that happen? So if you're to try and complete your explanation, or at least take it further, you need something that goes deeper than the Bohr-Rutherford atom. And so, in recent times, particularly since the Second World War and the discovery of atomic energy and atomic bombs and hydrogen bombs and all that stuff, we've invented a modern physics that includes quarks, gluons, all manner of additional particles, mesons and pions, positrons, and we've invented ways of talking about them and representing them, to use the word again, such as Feynman diagrams, where you take what were once the complicated integrals and formulae of early quantum theory, and you turn them into pictures to make them easier to grasp. And these pictures represent things like positrons as electrons going backwards in time. And all sorts of other things, and gluons as helical curves flying off from the paths that our quarks take. And we have six quarks, and we combine them to make different particles, and we have gluons that supposedly hold them together, and together with that we explain things like the strong force, strong nuclear force, using gauge theories, and things that become, for most people, impossibly abstract and mathematical. But this is just a modern version of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. I think anyone who seriously thinks that it matters that there be things like quarks and gluons has lost the plot. We may be able, through our Large Hadron Colliders at CERN and Stanford and elsewhere, to be able to produce experimental results that confirm that something is going on that looks like something that we would expect to go on, given the theories that we have developed. But these Large Hadron Colliders and other things are themselves the children of the theories that they use to design. And so they're examples of one of my favourite verses from the Bible, Genesis 12:5, and they set forth to come into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And the reason I say that is because they are examples of confirming what you've already, in a sense, implicitly assumed is there to be confirmed. I mentioned earlier the notion of reading two copies of the same newspaper to check that the first one was right. Well, this is a little bit like what's going on. I don't belittle it. I am not scornful of it. But I am saying that it's about talking to ourselves in language we understand in ways that enable us to represent things that we would otherwise not be able to get any kind of handle on at all. But it's a mistake to think 
that the things that they allow us to get a handle on are any more real than Goldilocks and the Three Bears. They are just ways of thinking about things we, or some of us, want to think about. Those of us that don't want to think about them, don't. And we're none the worse for it. The world has managed, somehow or other, to set itself up in a way that allows people to spend billions on the experiments that produce results that confirm the theories that design the experiments. But when you set out to go into the land of Canaan with sufficient determination, you tend to find that you get there. It doesn't mean that you're a success. It doesn't mean that your theory is an eternal truth grounded in the Urstoff of the universe. It just means that you know how to talk to yourself about things that matter to you. Goldilocks and the Three Bears, again. And this is what's going on all the time, so that we shouldn't be sniffy about different things that appear to have different levels of relevance, because the levels of relevance are themselves governed by what we think matters. If you don't think particle physics matters, or you don't think the lives and loves of human beings matter, or you don't think fairy stories matter, or you don't think questions of God and eternity matter, then you will be proportionately sniffy about the things that are done and said and the money that is spent in the name of all of them before you go down to the local stadium and go wild about the fortunes of your football team because that matters to you. And I don't think that there is anything very mysterious about this. What's more mysterious is that we don't see it more clearly and don't treat the matter with more circumspection and humility as a result. Only allow that all human representation is just like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And I think a lot of this becomes much less problematic. All our cries for and yearning after getting in touch with some kind of ultimate reality, as though it will preserve us through all eternity. No, it won't. Because one of the things that elementary physics tells us, elementary particle physics tells us, that physics is no, anything but elementary, is that the bodies that we live in and the air we breathe were formed in the earliest seconds of the universe when the neutrons and protons were formed and the carbon and the oxygen and the everything else was formed in stars and even the things we value so much, like gold and platinum, were formed when neutron stars coalesced in a fantastic explosion of astronomical glory. But so what? All that means is these billions of years over which this occurred, to a 
the oblivion of the processes concerned. Nobody was getting impatient. None of the molecules or atoms of oxygen that are flying around now and that were there billions of years ago are getting impatient because they're still around and nothing much has changed them. No, the reality is nothing will ever change them. Some of them will have played a part in your and my life, briefly, briefly. Or as somebody once said, you may just have inhaled and exhaled a molecule of oxygen that was part of Julius Caesar's final breath. Or maybe you have, but I'm not sure much hangs on it. So, when people get really upset about things, and I of course get upset about things myself, a useful counter to that is to think, yeah, but isn't this all just Goldilocks and the three bears? Or, and this is I suppose my real point, if it isn't just like Goldilocks and the three bears, makes it different. Anyway, the, the point that I'm making here, I may seem a very long way from my early, my early point about language, is that when I said to the GPT version 4, I think. So what we're really dealing with here is a mathematical model for the way in which atoms form. And we talked a little bit about gluons and quarks as well. And so I, I rather provocatively said to it, so what we're talking about here is just the most successful current fiction, or the optimal mathematical fiction that explains the most about these phenomena. And in as much as GPTs get upset, it said, no, 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 this isn't a fiction. This is confirmed by scientific experiment. And if the experiments didn't confirm the theories, we would change the theories. Okay, and we've been here. But we shouldn't imagine, and I certainly don't imagine, that what the scientific theories are testing is some kind of urstoff, as I've called it before, some kind of foundational material that exists and would exist independently of the kinds of creatures that we are, with the kinds of bodies that we have, with the kinds of senses that we can have, with the kinds of sensory apparatus that we can design into our experiments. I don't believe but what we're dealing with here is some kind of urstoff that transcends all that. What we are doing is using our physical capacity to embed our sensory physical existence into experiments to confirm the intellectual capacity that gives rise to the theories that those experiments test. And therefore, although it's not quite like reading two copies of the same newspaper to make sure that the first one is right, it is a little bit like that. 
because what we're trying to do, what we're ultimately satisfied in doing, is matching our theories with our experiences, not our theories with reality. And our experiences become progressively more sophisticated. And our theories become progressively more sophisticated. And when we have solved one problem, it usually throws up another. And so we find that we need to replace Ptolemy with Copernicus and Copernicus with Newton and Newton with Einstein and so on. And each time we're simply saying that we have become, we've become smarter, we've become capable of testing things more rigorously at a higher level of precision and that's demanded more and more sophisticated mathematical theories to explain it all. But I still maintain and you may say, well, who cares? And there's a certain sense in which you'd be right to say that, but I do still maintain that the notion that we're somehow dealing with theories that model reality in some ultimate sense is one of our more recent pretensions. It's the kind of modern equivalent of believing that we were at the centre of the universe before Copernicus came along. Or it's the modern equivalent of believing that God made us as the crowning glory of creation in the Garden of Eden before Darwin came along. And before very long, perhaps in my lifetime, wouldn't surprise me at all, we will discover perhaps elementary, perhaps not so elementary life on other planets. Even if they're only the moons of Jupiter or Mars or wherever it may be, we will. And then all of these theories will need to be revised and we will say, well, whatever we may once have thought about being the crowning glory of creation just took a bit of a knock. And so everything hangs together. And to come back to my beginning, because I'm sorry, I've wandered perhaps you might think off the point, but to come back to the beginning, just as the meaning of a word has to be understood in the context of the whole language in which it occurs, so the meaning of a theory and the significance of an experiment and the nature of an experience and therefore the nature of our understanding must be understood in the context of our total cultural worldview. And we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that because our theories and our experiments seem to coincide, that our theories are therefore true in the permanent, eternal sense, we should simply conclude that our theories are borne out by experiments that frankly were designed by the theories that they are intended to check. And so as our theories become more sophisticated, our experiments become more sophisticated. The texture, if you like, the resolution of our worldview increases. And we get to points where we think, and this is a pretension, that we might be on the verge of understanding everything. But the universe has a curious way of kicking us when we get to that pretentiousness and showing us something suddenly that is quite different. 
And yes, of course we will say, and with some justification, what else can we do? We can't look at the world from a perspective that we don't have. We can't understand things better than we understand them. Few enough of us as it is understand these things, and I certainly don't count myself among them. But all the more reason to be circumspect. All the more reason to be humble. All the more reason to see truth wherever it may arise. And with all its cousins and aunts and uncles and distant, more distant relatives as just the best we can do right now. Because the best we can do right now is all we can do right now. Let's not, let's not saddle ourselves with a view of truth that means that we are then going to find it particularly difficult to relinquish what we think true now when something better comes along. Because we've done that far too often. And it's not just been religious people, scientists too have done it. Science has done persecutions just the way religious people have. Scientists say, well, if you don't agree with our majority view, you're certainly not going to get a job in this university. You're certainly not going to get tenure because you're a maverick, a madman. More often than not, well, no, not more often than not, but certainly often, the mavericks turn out to be right. And then everybody feels a bit shamefaced for the way they were treated. There are lots of examples in science and in mathematics, which you might think would be exempt from such excrescences. So let's just do the best we can, treat truth as a pointer to the best we've got available right now. Something that is as contextualised by our culture and its history and our views of reason and knowledge and worthwhileness and truth and trust and resonance as all the other words that we have available. And eat some humble pie whilst rejoicing that we live in an age when we understand so much that the ancients didn't even dream of. Well, that concludes this series on truth. Watch this space for series 10 on something else. Thank you for listening.